I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you, you may be saved. He was a burning and a shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the words that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his words abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not ref receive the glory from the people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive the glory from one another <clears throat> and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. <clears throat> we thank you for all these people that have gathered to make this church today. At this time, Lord, we ask that you will be with Eric as he brings a, the message and that we will have our ears open to hear what he says. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Thanks, brother. Good morning. Well, it's it's Aaron and I that are the preachers now, so um, you're going to see me more. So get ready. I'm thankful to be here. Um, let me just begin in prayer. Father, it's just, it's just an honor and a privilege to stand and to offer up your word. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would go before me and, and just help me communicate clearly. Help me instruct, teach, convict your people. And, in the, and at the same time, all the while, doing it to me. I don't have the power to change anyone, but by you, Spirit, you do. And so I ask that 
Jesus would be clear to those who believe, and I pray that those that don't would meet him today. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1995, there was a, a notorious American trial that really mesmerized the world, and that was the O.J. Simpson trial when he uh, was on trial for murdering his wife. And while I'm not going to get into all that, I, I want to I set the backdrop for our message today that it's a trial that we'll be experiencing. There was 150 witnesses that, that, were, uh, that, that testified on the Simpsons trial. Today there'll be four. Four or five, depending on the, the commentators. I'm going to give you five. Um, and I'm going to set this, this sermon up in a four-part series trying to address this as the main point of the sermon. We need the law, but true life is found in the grace giver. So this will be a four-part trial that I'll walk you through. And in this trial... This is a trial to seek truth. We have Jesus and the religious leaders in the courtroom. We have Jesus as the judge, as verse 30 says, as ascribed by the Father, and the witnesses are lined up. So here is this four-part legal proceeding. Part one, we're going to set up the trial and the first two witnesses will testify. So this is out of John 5, 30 through 34. Let me read this. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not the will, not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. So Jesus is prepared for this trial. But why is this trial necessary? He wants the world to know that belief in him is where eternal life is ultimately found. And number two, the scriptures are necessary to reveal him. So the Pharisees are adamant they hold the upper hand. Yet as Jesus deliberates with them, he predicts their answers as he asks question after question. So as we're setting up the trial, Jesus doesn't come on his own accord, but by the Father who sent him in verse 30. Not only that, he is honoring Old Testament law which says, according to Deuteronomy 17.6, on the evidences of two witnesses or three witness, witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. He recognizes that his, that this t that his testimony alone is not acceptable as proof but the witnesses he will share support his claims. So witness number one, we have God the Father. Verse 32. 
there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the witness he bears about me is true. It is important to recognize Jesus' one-to-one relationship he has with his Father. Everything about Jesus is wrapped up into what he thinks about his Father and what the Father has sent him to do. While the Father doesn't have a voice in the trial per se, he has called Jesus on a mission to save sinners. Bound up in this relationship is hope and power that only Jesus can, can fulfill as willed by his Father. And, and further along in, in the scripture that I'm presenting, John 5, 37, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And I'll get to that part of the uh, scripture in a bit. So witness number two, we have John the Baptist. You sent John and he bore witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I have is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. So if you go back in John 1, the Apostle John, the Gospel of John 1, you see John the Baptist baptizing in the Jordan, and the Jews and the priests come to him, and they're, they're interrogating him, and they're asking him all these questions, and he's doing what he's doing, and he's answering, he's baptizing people. And he's waiting for that moment. And then it happens. He sees Jesus come across the crest. And he proclaims, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. That was his whole purpose, was just to proclaim that truth. And then he baptizes Jesus. Believing himself completely unworthy and yet fulfilling the scriptures. John 1, 32, 34, and John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom the Spirit descends and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. It's amazing. The, the religious Jews saw this go down. They're, they're standing in front of this, this life-changing moment in history. The truth was before their eyes, and yet they were blind in this spiritual darkness. In verse 35, it says that he was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. You see, John was the lamp, and Jesus was the light. And he was called to shine as he proclaimed and witnessed Christ to a dark world. And what's interesting to note is that it says that, that he was, it says, John was, or rather, he was the burning and shining lamp, and you, will, you were willing to rejoice with him for, for a while in his light. 
See, some of the Jews celebrated this light. In other words, the, the truth fell on them like rocky soil. And so for a moment, there was joy and there was excitement and then the crushing world around them, the fear of man, scattered the seed away and they just lost it, lost the faith. So as I think about how do we apply these first two witnesses to our life, I have, I have some questions that I want to ask. Do you believe that Jesus is who the Father and John the Baptist say he is? Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God and Savior of the world and bear witness of him? Sometimes we have a fear that hearing, that the hearing world won't believe or find these claims silly. John the Baptist spoke regardless of who was listening. Let's take to heart the parable of the sower. Let me read that to you. Because I think it says a lot about our faith and what we think we're doing in light of what we've been called to do as sowers. And so Mark 4, again, he began to teach by the sea and a very large crowd gathered around him. So he got into a boat and on the sea and sat down while the crowd was by the sea on the shore. He taught them many things in the parables and in his teaching he, t he said to them, listen, consider the sower who went out to sow. As he sowed, some of the seed fell on the path and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil and it grew up quickly since the soil wasn't deep. When the sun came, it, it was scorched, and since it did not take root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it didn't produce fruit. Still other seed fell on good ground, and it grew up, producing fruit that increased thirty, sixty, and a hundred times. Then he said, let anyone who has ears to, listen, to hear listen. So then later he explains the sower parable. Then he said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. Some are like the word sown on the path. When they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word sown in them. Others are like seed sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy, but they have no root. They are short-lived. When distress or persecution comes because of the word, they immediately fall away. Others are like seeds sown among thorns. These are the ones who hear the word, but the worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And those like seeds sown on good ground hear the word, welcome it, and produce fruit 30, 60, and 100 times what was sown. Our words matter. So what we say about Jesus matters. Do you desire to talk about your friends, your families, your coworkers about Jesus? When we sow God's word, it isn't our streamlined argument 
that will get them saved. No, not even suave presentation of the gospel gets them saved. It comes from an earnest heart of belief and prayer and dependence on the Spirit that God will open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf to see and hear the Lord Jesus for the first time as we sow, as we tell people about Jesus. So, sir, so as we circle back to, the, to this parable, we need to be sowers of the word. We need not to worry about how the world receives it. We need a posture of humility and dependence that I hope is filled with excitement and anticipation the Lord will move in the lives of those we know that don't believe. So be dutiful in prayer. Ask the Lord to, to make opportunities come available to you so you can speak truth into their life. And then let the Spirit do the work. And pray that that soil is ripe for a harvest of fruitful belief. I've, I mentioned this illustration in the past about a coworker who God has put on my heart and, and really just kind of pushed me into saying something and connecting with. And this gentleman is young, he's fatherless, he's, he's living just a life of debauchery, and I care. He's a neighbor. He lives up the street. And I finally had the opportunity to exchange emails or exchange phone numbers with him. And I reached out, let's, let's get together for lunch. Well, he's asleep during lunchtime because he's always out partying in the night. So now I need to determine, am I going to go out and party with him with water and play pool after I've worked a day at work? Well, the other day, he was in the break room and I just said, listen, you know, I want to connect with you. And I care for you. I'm praying for you. And I go, I know, I know what it's like having a, a kind of a rotten daddy. He was sharing some stuff earlier in the week. And I said, listen, let's, let, I want you to know that I'm here for you. And, you know, I didn't get into the gospel. I didn't get into sharing Jesus per se with him. But I got into being in his life. And that's what we need to do. We need to share truth as we get into the lives of others. So part two of this trial continues. We're on the stand are Jesus' works as evidences that he is who he claims to be. So in verse 36, but the testimony I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. The Apostle John shared first-hand accounts of Jesus' interacting with the unbelieving world over his authority and power when it came to curing sickness, healing on the Sabbath, forgiving sin, judging the world, and saving sinners. The final miracle would... Uh, 
culminate on the cross of Calvary and a resurrection from the tomb. He accomplishes the works. When the Father gives work to Jesus, He gets it done. He accomplishes the works. It was in the obedience to the Father as Jesus brought forth to completion, opening the eyes of the blind, providing living water to the spiritually dried up, and raising the dead to life. Jesus shows himself worthy and authority of and worthy of authority and power. But see, his worthiness isn't found in the miracles but rather in his identity as the Son to the Father, as we saw in verse 37. And I'll read it again. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Another point to make is that Jesus, who are standing, excuse me, another point to make is that the Jews who are standing in front of Jesus are encountering the living God in the flesh and yet don't see him because of their spiritual blindness and lack of belief. So, when Jesus says, his voice you have never heard and his form you have never seen, he is challenging what they claim to believe in the Torah, which are the first five books of the Bible. Jesus continues to press into them, denying they know God because you do not have his abiding word in you, for you do not believe in the one whom he has sent. This parallels to verse 38, excuse me, the parallel verse 38 is found in John 1, 1 through 2, and link... And, and links to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. It takes the Word of God to believe the Word of God, but it takes the Spirit of God to believe it. The religious zealots quest for nothing more than spiritual knowledge and fail to recognize their desperate need for the transformative hope they can find in Jesus. They need the Spirit of God to open up their eyes. So as I consider application, it may be presumptuous of me, but maybe it's not a far stretch that we define ourselves in our own achievements. I can look in the mirror and ask, am I a good enough husband? Am I cutting the mustard? Mothers, do you feel a miss? Do you feel you missed the mark being in your parenting? Some of you may have been forced to find new jobs because of the pandemic. Has this caused financial disruption in your budget? Perhaps we have made some bad choices or decisions which caused us to hurt others. If your worth is based on relational performance with your spouse, children, or even your friends, or, or, or a lack of job accolades, or even failures of sin, you are a candidate for the gospel of grace. When we read about all the miracles that Jesus performed, they all point to the ultimate miracle that culminated on the cross. For 
for us. He opened our spiritual blind eyes to see the truth of who He is. He has given us hearts, new hearts, to believe Him. But what's most scandalous is He has forgiven our shortcomings and our misguided identities of worth which with Christ-centered identities. There are no, these are no match for His grace. No match. John 1, 16 and 17, from the fullness we all received grace upon grace. For the law has given, was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In this new place of identity, because what Jesus has done, we can live out that with gratitude. And it isn't about what we do, but it's what He has done. I remember counseling, as an illustration, I remember a uh, counseling a brother early back who was engaged to be married and they were living together and, you know, it was done out of convenience. But I really encouraged him to consider living apart until they, until they got married, until they covenanted under God and got married. And as I began to explain to him that that God isn't, isn't judging him in the sky for, you know, you're in sin and, and you can't be married, but rather he's giving him an opportunity to realize that his identity is to, to remain pure in Christ and therefore separating and living apart and waiting for marriage was a good thing for, for him and his fiance, but was also honoring to God. And so he realized his new identity as a son of God allowed him to, to really live that out as he was being respectful and honoring his bride-to-be. So part three of the trial, we, we have the scriptures that are on witness, that are the witness. In verse 39, it says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. And if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? This is, this is a difficult text to, to wrestle with. It's, it is. But, but here's, here's what I took away. Mastering the scriptures for the Jewish priests was their ultimate quest. A heightened sense of piety to their searching was to their glory and not to the glory of God. In verse 39, Jesus recognizes their studiousness of the scriptures, but he points out that in the motivation to know them as just spiritual knowledge, there is no eternal life. He continues to show them that he has, that he doesn't receive glory from people as they do for their scholarly or uh, pietistic abilities. Their prideful minds 
miss the very aspect of what or who these words of God are speaking of. In the Gospel of Luke 24, 27, says here, and the beginning, excuse me, let me, let me give a context. So Jesus has resurrected and he's walking with the disciples and they're amazed that he's there. And so he takes a moment and reasons with the scriptures. And it says here that, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. According to commentaries read, because of competing value systems, the Mediterranean culture of the time was heavily influenced by lifting up a group or a person they'd honor and glory. With, with honor and glory. While the religious claimed to know God, they lifted up one another for their worth and their own glory. But for Jesus coming in the Father's name, he was demonstrating his loyalty, loyalty to the one who deserves the ultimate glory. See, as Christians, we are to delight in the scriptures. Psalm 119, 103 says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. But how can we truly know Jesus? But can we truly know Jesus apart from his word? Some study the Bible to look for better ways to live, but are less interested in knowing Jesus. Some don't even read the Bible and call themselves Christian. True, the Bible does teach us God's commands to live a life of holiness and reverence. But the Word of God isn't to produce a people of behavior change. But rather, because this leads to a, a life of self-righteousness like the Pharisees. We, we don't want to live lives of morality. That's a life lived with a grimace on your face and a fear of what tomorrow brings if you don't get it right. I came across a quote by J.C. Ryle, who was an Anglican bishop and the first of Liver in the in the first the first bishop of Liverpool in the 19th century, and he said, "Take away the cross of Christ, and the Bible is a dark book." That was very poignant to me. So we need to study the scriptures like a Pharisee, but to recognize that we all fall short following God's laws like the tax collector who beats his chest and cries out, Oh Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, that we read in Mark, excuse me, in Luke 18. And when we see Jesus in the scriptures, this elevates our eyes and our hearts to fix on God the author and perfecter of our faith. So, excuse me, we live in light of what Christ has done and sacrificed for our sake of trying to live rightly. He gives us his life with power with which to live. So what is your Bible study like? Are you able to join us on Wednesdays as Pastor Aaron was mentioning earlier today? For the corporate study, do we do you meet with somebody during the week and open the word, encourage one another, and learn more about Jesus? 
Do you meet with, excuse me, if you're struggling with adding this rhythm to your life, just do something. Something to stir the pot so you can be, you can have affections that grow for, for God's word and the author of it. Because as you do this, your knowledge of God broadens and the love of Christ deepens. So for, for Carl and I, the one thing that we've tried to do more regularly is meet with a couple other families on Sunday night. So we gather, we have fellowship, we have some dinner, we laugh, some of us cry, not just me, and we have a really great time. We're all Christians, we open God's words, and we talk about what we're thankful for. We talk about what we're struggling with. And what this is doing is this is, this is deepening our love for one another. We, we, we're, we're opening the word of God. We're, we're, we're rallying around that. We're including our children in this. So they can experience their parents doing this, but also including them in those conversations. What are they thankful for? What are they struggling with? And prayer. And this is really, this is really helping, helping us grow as Christians. And we're doing it together. So I encourage you, do something like that. So part, here we are, part four of the trial. Last to take the stand, we have Moses as the witness. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses... You would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? I find this most intriguing of all of these witnesses. The opponents of Jesus idolize someone who they thought was greater than Jesus. Moses. He was their superhero of the scriptures. And he was, he was honored above all. He was their hope. But if they truly knew Moses' teaching, they would have encountered his teachings on the prophet to come. Jesus knows this, which may be why, this is, this is me moving aside of Scripture and just, just offering my own insight here, my own thoughts, which, my, which may be why he saves this for the last in, in the final rebuttal to their attack of believing but not believing in him and failure to see the truth. And see, really, this, this is a blow to their idolatry because as we read in Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 17, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. This is Moses speaking. From your brothers, it is him you shall listen just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see the great fire anymore, lest I die. The Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I just think it's, it's really, really interesting that this accusatory stance of Moses is crumbling the very core of what the Jewish religion, re, Jewish leaders, Jewish leaders are arguing for. 
as they place a faith in someone else than Jesus. The testimony of Moses' writings about the prophet to come and saying to the Israelites, it's him you shall listen. The very fabric of belief these opponents were placing in, placing their hope in, was in vain. So as I was thinking of application for this, I need to ask, who is your Moses? Is it your boss? Your professor or your spouse? Who do you idolize more than Jesus in your life? See, when finding an application for the text to our lives, we have to take it personal. We have to take it to a, a personal level. Who is that someone you put your hope in other than Jesus? And then I ask the question, are they delivering or meeting your expectations? Maybe you're thinking, if my boss, for example, maybe you're thinking, if my boss values my performance and I do well, I will therefore hold value. But what if you mess up on something and your boss gets upset? Will you still hold the same value? Exodus 23 says, you shall have, as, as Moses is giving the commandments, it says, you shall have no other gods before me. Anytime you place a person in the place of God, you will sadly be disappointed. It is in him you shall listen. So here is what Jesus is saying. If your boss lashes out to you for failing, remember, this is what Jesus is saying. You have my righteousness, and I have your mess up. And the lashing out from your boss, it's on me. That's why I went to the cross, so you don't have to. If your spouse, if, if your spouse is your Moses, and you sin against them for not meeting your expectation for cleanliness, for example, Jesus says, they deserve mercy. So I'll go to the cross so that you can experience the mercy as well. These examples are evidences of God's grace and the beauty and freedom that comes from the cross. There is so much more hope that we can have in Jesus than putting our hope in a Moses. So in conclusion, here we are. The testimony of Christ, of who he says he is, is supported by five witnesses who took stand during this trial. God the Father has sent the Son on mission to save sinners, which is why some of you are sitting in this room. John the Baptist displays Jesus as the Son of God as he decreases so Jesus might increase to begin his earthly mission. The miracles that Jesus has performed demonstrate his power to redeem and restore the physical universe as he brought forth sight, hearing, mobility to the afflicted, and life to the dead, but also spiritual life so that people would believe in him to, to live life eternally. And the scriptures report that they are not, end of, they are not an end of themselves, but rather point us, pointers to, to Jesus, the living word. And then finally, Moses accused the Pharisees that he is not their hero, that Jesus is their hero. 
the prophet who came, who comes after him, and that we are to listen to for it for for life. All of these witnesses support the claim that Jesus is who he is, who he says he is. But my question to you, who is Jesus to you? Is he your teacher? Well, yes, he is a teacher. He's so much more. Is he your friend? Yes, he is your friend. He's laid his life down for you. Is he the judge you fear because you think you're not good enough? Well, you're probably not good enough. Or is he your savior and your Lord? You see, to have him as your savior or in your Lord, we get him as teacher to point us on the path of righteousness. We get him as, as, as a friend who comes alongside us in times of difficulty and suffering. And he takes the punch for us. He takes the, the suffering for us. He walks in it with us. And he, he is the judge. And he is the jury. But he's also the accused. <laughs> you see, when the, when the anvil finally hits at the final trial, Jesus is accused. And he goes to the cross for us. He goes as our substitution, so we don't have to. The anvil ended Jesus' final trial, where the Lord of the universe stood condemned for the sins of the world, for you and for me, and for the joy set before him, endure the cross forgiving us of disobedience and giving us eternal life for those that don't know Jesus and claim something else as their hope they will suffer God's wrath there's no way around it but if you call on Jesus as your Lord and Savior today he has paid the penalty and he has set you free to live eternally with him now. He has given up his life for us so that we could have his life in his death. And through that, we get to be his church. We get to encourage one another. We get to gather together. We get to celebrate in song. We get to give in tithes and offerings. We get to be Jesus to the world. So where are you today with Jesus? Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you that we have an opportunity as you open our eyes to see Jesus in your word, to respond, because you give us the Holy Spirit to believe. And so I ask right now, Lord Jesus, that you would send your Holy Spirit to anyone in this room who does not call on you as his or her Lord and Savior and let them experience you. I don't know what happened on the O.J. Simpson trial ultimately, but I know what happened on the cross of Calvary. 
and I know that you are reigning with your Father and you will come back to gather your people to celebrate. In Jesus' name, amen.